0: Hey, my name is Chris Brennan and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about a variety of different astrological topics with astrologer Ray Grassi. Hey, Ray, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you in this episode. So I'm having a hard time coming up with a title for this episode and it'll be a surprise what the eventual title is, but some of our working titles at this point are Lessons from a Lifetime of Practicing Astrology with Ray Grassi because um you have written you've been a longtime editor and columnist of the Mountain Astrologer magazine and you've published two different collections of your essays over the course of your astrological career that just have a variety of different really interesting anecdotes and and lessons and reflections on astrology and I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of those topics today if you're up for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, so let me show an image. So the first book was published in 2015 and this is published by Wessex. It was titled Under a Sacred Sky: Essays on the Practice and Philosophy of Astrology. And the other one was titled Stargates: Essays on Astrology, Symbolism and the Synchronistic Universe, which was published in 2020 and I think you did you self-publish that one? Yeah. Okay, nice. Well, they're both really great collections of essays and One of the things I wanted to start with talking about one of our umbrella topics is we've both been talking recently about how astronomers like Mike Brown are searching for this planet, this large planet that they think is somewhere out there past Pluto. And um, one of the questions that astrologers have which is how do astrologers figure out the meaning of new planets once a new planet is discovered? And this brings up a lot of interesting questions about you know the fundamental nature of astrology and the premise and how astrologers derive significations from symbolism as well as the nature of astrology as well itself in dealing with symbolism. And that's a recurring topic in your essays is the nature of astrology working through synchronicity and symbolism, right?
1: Right, yeah. And so when you have the discovery of a new planet, there's different things you can look at to try to figure out the meaning of that planet, like uh, the events that happen around the actual discovery. Like under Uranus, you had this um, revolutionary spirit and democracy, uh, the industrial revolution, so on and so forth. Under Neptune, you had uh, more of an emphasis on civil rights and uh, freeing of a, a... uh, oppressed peoples, and so on. And so let's say there's a new planet discovered, and that's just come up in the last week about this sense of um, a, a new possible planet being um, found, but that hasn't been confirmed yet. So how are we going to determine what that planet means? Like I said, look to the, maybe the events around the discovery, give her a year or two on either side at least. You can look at the Sabian symbol for the uh, discovery degree. You can look to Um, over the course of decades, you can watch conjunctions to that planet. Let's say Jupiter conjuncts that planet every 12 years, you see what happens. Uranus squares it. Uh, Or in your own personal chart, you see where it falls, if it's on the angle or if it's conjuncting a personal planet. Now, in the case of a, a planet that's way out past Pluto, it's tricky because it would move very, very slowly. So it wouldn't make much of a, uh, a movement over the course of a single lifetime. But if it's conjuncting your personal planet, for example, that takes on a certain signification So that you might look at 10 charts of people that have that new planet conjuncting the moon and you see a certain characteristic with that.
0: Yeah. I, I was looking at Eris recently and it's just been like grinding its way through Aries for forever, it seems like, right? For quite a while. Yeah
1: yeah it's it seems to take forever. but if it's if it's conjunct to an important degree in your in your chart, you're going to get some sense of it more than someone that doesn't have that sort of uh, connection to it.
0: right. Well, let's go back to to square one though because we're already we're jumping into the how to discover the planets. but in terms of the mechanism of astrology, is it because the planets are influencing events on earth? or what is your opinion on that when it comes to what is the mechanism underlying astrology?
1: Yeah, good question. I I don't buy into the force argument that there's some kind of emanations coming from the planet. I think there may be emanations, but in terms of the, the effect it has in our life, or rather it's not so much an effect, it's a synchronistic sort of thing, as without, so within. So that you have, let's say around the discovery of Pluto, you had the criminal underworld becoming big, you had the stock market depression the year before. Um, you had psychology reaching a sort of zenith in terms of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and all this. It's not that that caused anything to happen, it's a synchronistic effect. And it gets into this aspect of symbolism that is often overlooked when when you hear arguments about astrology. So for instance, the difference between the way an astronomer looks at Jupiter and the way an astrologer looks at Jupiter is the astronomer can analyze Jupiter in terms of the gases, the the weight, the size, uh, dimensions, etc. Uh, an, an astrologer looks at Jupiter in terms of its meaning, in terms of the symbolism that it has, and that's connected to a whole network of correspondences. And that's not something that can be easily measured. Although Gogolin actually did a pretty interesting job of showing that there is some meaning there, because you see Jupiter, for example, positioned in the charts of politicians and actors. You see Saturn very strong in the charts of scientists and physicians. Mars very prominent in the charts of athletes, Certain, um, outstanding athletes, I should say.
0: Right. So I think you said in your book, I think you're maybe you're quoting a teacher where you said that astrology is astronomy interpreted symbolically or something to that effect
1: yeah it's it's astronomy this is a a teacher i studied with in florida a, a disciple of Yogananda's. his name was Shelley trimmer a very profound occultist and i asked him to describe astronomy to me astrology to me and he said that astrology is astronomy symbolically interpreted it takes the same basic facts as astronomy but it infuses those with a certain meaning and that's something that Quantum physics can't really approach. Uh, Newtonian science can't approach. It's her- a hermeneutic dimension that sees a different layer to the the events to the phenomena than, let's say, an astronomer or a scientist would see in it.
0: Right. So this gets back to the principle of that Carl Jung defined as the principle of synchronicity, which is an a causal or symbolic connecting principle that. Where things are connected through coinciding in time and in meaning, right?
1: Right. Um, In other words, the nature of synchronicity, and there's a lot of debates over what that means in terms of different people have interpreted it differently, and I myself included. But um, he also talked about not only a synchronization of events But there is a dimension of archetypality, of an archetype involved, a a symbolic meaning. Because you can have two things coinciding in a somewhat a-causal way, like the two particles that are separated in space, according to um, Bell's theorem, and uh, uh, EPR effect. But they're not connected symbolically. They're literal connections. Whereas when Carl Jung found a beetle tapping at the window at the time, a client, a patient of his was Talking about a dream she had about an Egyptian scarab, you know, there was a symbolic meaning in terms of how that tied into her life, and that kind of helped her break through the blockage she had in her therapy at that point. Is is that answering your?
0: A little bit, um, but I think you had some really good examples, um, in your book of some specific synchronistic sort of astrological parallels. For example, I think there was one with a, a client with like Mars on the IC or something like that in a consultation.
1: Yeah. There was a a client had, um, if I remember the story, it's been quite a while since I wrote that, but Mars on the IC, the lowest part of the chart. And I asked this client what happened around the time she was born. If there was anything that happened, I often like to ask that because sometimes people remember, or not remember, but the parents remember what happened. And you often find very interesting synchronicities and symbols around the time the child was born. And she said that while her mother was at the hospital giving birth to her, her there was a fire b- back at the house. Wow. And you know that how do you explain something like that to a scientist if they take a, a materialistic view of astrology or if they approach it from that kind of mechanistic viewpoint? How do you explain that Mars being at the bottom of, of the sky at the at the moment, someone is born somehow ties into fire breaking out. How do you explain that there's a connection between Mars and fire, or knives and the color red, or arguments or warfare? These are symbolic correspondences in the doctrine, like I was saying to you the other night. Uh, astrology is based on the doctrine of correspondences, which is this subterranean network of of symbolic resonances, you might say, and. So again, you look to see what happens at the time someone's born, and it's not necessarily a literal connection. And The other example I've used with that is from the Native American tradition where a child is born, and at the moment the child is born, the parents see a deer running by the the teepee, for instance. So what do they call the child? They call the child running deer. And it's not because there's some force field coming from the deer to the child. It's not because of some quantum physical principle. It's because that deer is a symbol and everything around is a symbol in that sense at the time of birth. The stars are just one set of symbols at the moment of birth.
0: Right. So, yeah, that really gets into something that seems to arise spontaneously or did arise spontaneously in a lot of ancient cultures, which is paying attention to omens and omenology which are are things happening in the environment simultaneous to something that have some sort of symbolic importance because um, certain moments in time have a certain quality and that quality ripples through different events that occur in that same moment, it seems like as part of the premise.
1: Right. And if you go back into the Babylonian omen series, for example, they had a distinction between celestial omens and terrestrial omens. And so these, the terrestrial omens, the earthbound omens might be something like uh, a, a two-headed animal starts walking through the, the city, for instance, and that's an anomaly. So that's something unusual. They, they log that and they see if that corresponds to something happen, happening to the ruler of the empire. And then if that happens again, 20 years later, they see an animal with two heads and they, they make the connection, they start establishing predictions. But then you have the celestial omens, which includes what became astrology as we understand it, where it might be eclipses, it might be comets, it might be a strange meteorological phenomena. And so, again, they understood that it wasn't just the stars and the planets that you look to, you look to everything, and the stars and planets make it a little easier, you might say, because you can take an ephemeris out and see everything. It's not always so easy to go outside and see other phenomena happening like two-headed animals and all that.
0: Yeah, Um, but I think that's important because once you understand synchronicity and symbolic thinking, it gives you a much better access point for understanding and even generating new meanings in astrology. So understanding the planets that we already have and getting a deeper insight into why they mean what they mean, like why Jupiter means what it means or why Mars means what it means, but also potentially then a better access point for generating and understanding new planetary bodies that will be discovered in the future as well. So one of the things that's really interesting about that that I want to talk to you about that I know you've written an article about is how some of the astronomical properties of the planets that are only being recently discovered relatively recently in the, the span of human history, through the invention of telescopes or through um the, the ability of humans to fly spacecraft by and like photograph different planets how some of the physical properties of the planets interestingly um either inform us or echo some astrological significations and symbolism that astrologers already associated with those planets right
1: yeah so for instance mars um it's red, you know, which is the color of Mars. And it turns out that the reason for that, that they have discovered in the last, I guess, 50, 60 years is because of iron oxide on Mars. Now, isn't it interesting that long before scientists knew that there was iron oxide on Mars, Mars was associated with iron in occult symbolism in terms of the metals. Or you take, for instance, when they uh, discovered Uranus, we did not know that it was tilted on its axis. That had a very eccentric sort of uh, orbital, you know, axial rotation.
0: Right. It's one of the sort of weird planets. It's one of the only planets that does that for some reason that rotates on its side rather than the normal, quote unquote, normal way that all the rest of the planets do.
1: Right. And so that that tells you something about the eccentricity of the planet itself in terms of its meaning. Or you take. That
0: people, let's just dwell on. I don't want to move on too fast. I want to really. Milk like each of these. So it's like going back yeah. to Mars. Um, one of the other things with Mars that I noticed when I, I went with my friend Nick Dagan Best years ago to like a planetarium where they were doing a tours of all the planets. And one of the things about Mars is it has this huge, when you're looking at it from space, like a, a gash across the entire planet. Valles um,
1: Marineris.
0: Yeah. And that's what is that? That's like the biggest, the largest
1: um, canyon in the solar system.
0: Yeah. And that's really striking from a, just a visual and st- symbolic standpoint since that's also one of the things just traditionally for over 2,000 years now that Mars is associated with is um, you know, cuts and scars, um, lacerations and scars. Yeah, especially like some of the ancient texts that talk about the appearance of somebody, like the appearance of a client. They'll say if Mars is in a certain place, they have a scar after getting cut in that place, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and so. uh, go on. Go on. Well, no, that you can do that with all the planets. Some that's a little more obvious than others. Like the way I first got into this way of thinking was when that teacher, uh, one of my three astrology teachers, Shelley Trimmer, uh, he's the one back in the late '70s that said to me about um, if you look to the properties of the planets, you'll get some clues about their meaning. And he used Jupiter. And he said that Jupiter is so large that it establishes the plane, the orbital planes for all the different planets. It's the lawgiver of the solar system in that sense. And he said that then can be taken to understand how Jupiter is the lawgiver in its symbolic meaning in terms of judicial matters and lawgiving and that type of thing. And the sheer size of it, it's it's very expansive. It's by far the most expansive planet. Outside of what the sun isn't a planet, but the most expansive body of the solar system, and that whatever it touches in the horoscope becomes expanded and so on.
0: Right. And it's interesting because, you know, one of the things about that with Jupiter is like ancient astrologers, there's no way of knowing that Jupiter was the largest planet besides the sun, the largest body besides the sun in the solar system prior to, you know, modern times or the invention of the telescope. But there was something about the way that jupiter was interpreted symbolically that already tied it into that you know centuries before that realization so so some of those additional astronomical properties that were discovered actually reinforced in many ways the already existing lineage of sort of interpreting those bodies astrologically
1: and that raises the question to what degree do astrologers understand the meaning of a new planet through intuition when let's say uranus was discovered did they uh, you've told that story of, was it Valley, Valerie, the fellow that oh, Varley. tells Varley? Yeah.
0: I mean, I take that as an instant uh, um, implying that many of the early you know, trad- traditional astrologers that were sort of working in that lineage were trying to develop some of the understandings empirically. Because you know, in, in that story, Varley saw, he, he had an idea it was going to be important. There's an important Uranus transit coming. He had gotten the idea from the past instances that some sort of Violent or unexpected disruption might happen. And then he shut himself inside his house in order to, when the, the appointed hour came, in order to be safe. But then his house caught on fire unexpectedly. And out, unexpectedly. And he ran outside and scribbled down his notes that he discovered the meaning of Uranus. He confirmed it as his house burned to the ground.
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, on the one hand there is that empirical side to understanding what a new planet is, but you have to then wonder to what degree might people an intuitive person, a psychic, a uh, channeler, whatever it might be, uh using a pendulum, uh muscle testing, are there ways to determine what the planet means in those other, you know, non-empirical fashions and that's an open question obviously.
0: Yeah, I mean, for my approach at least, I think so much of the Original meanings of the planets was tied in with symbolic considerations, and and almost every thing that we understand about the planets can be traced back ultimately to some kind of astronomical or symbolic property. That was one of the things that attracted me to studying ancient astrology: is realizing that there were actually reasons for many of these things that had just been handed down by tradition for centuries, and that we've taken for granted as astrologers for many centuries, but actually did have some kind of logical, almost rationale in some sense.
1: And in some cases, it's very curious what astronomers have come up with in terms of how that enhances the meaning. So for instance, Venus is very beautiful when you look at it up in the sky. And yet in Vedic cosmology, as I remember, Venus was associated with Shukra, demon goddess, the guru to the demons. And so there is that dark side to Venus, and then astronomers find out that there is this extraordinary heat on Venus's surface. It's it, It'll burn you up. You can't even put a spacecraft down there without it melting after a certain period of time. And the word Venus tying into the word venereal, for instance. And so you know maybe that is a possibility of how the properties reflect, I think, some of the deeper, subtler meanings of a planet.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it implies that once astrologers do pick up on the correct, um, not just symbolic, but archetypal meeting, that once astrologers do get a good line on um, really truly tapping into what the archetype of a planet is, that that archetype will later continue to be confirmed through other means that may you know, be discovered subsequent to that, even if they weren't known about initially.
1: Yeah. And I'm very intrigued by the outer three planets, the trans Saturnian planets, because they represent progressively deeper uh, uh, points in space. For example, Pluto is so far out, it, it, whereas it takes about five minutes, eight minutes for light to come from the sun to the earth, it takes five hours for light to reach Pluto. So it's way out there. In fact, it's in our past. If you uh, go into that idea of how the further in space things are, the more in the, our past they are because of the time it takes for light to get to us. And so Pluto represents this point that is very deep in the darkness. It's, It represents a point that's very deep in the subconscious, you might say, and, so, and also the past. Whenever Pluto triggers in someone's chart, you often see this uh, welling up of Elements or people or phenomena from the past, like a Pl- I had a client recently where Pluto crossed her Venus, and she had played harp as a child, and the harp was tucked away in the closet. When right when Pluto tr- triggered her Venus, she found her old harp, and she started playing again. Again, things from the past—that sense of um, the depths rising up into the present. Right.
0: Um, and let me here- let me
1: add one other point to that, which is that. Uranus is kind of a threshold planet because you can see Uranus on a really clear night if you know where to look. Neptune represents the first fully invisible planet invisible to human eyes. So when when Neptune was discovered in the mid 1800s, 1846, there was this uh, this welling up of mystical sort of interest. You had Abraham Lincoln holding séances in the White House, for instance. You had Edgar Allan Poe was uh, writing uh, around the time Neptune was discovered. You had uh, this element of symbolism in art that started with first with the Pre-Raphaelites and then later on with uh, artists like Jean Delville. Um, it was an extraordinary uh, century in terms of the second half of the century being this opening up of hidden things that had been previously hidden, including like the Theosophical Society and the writings of occultists like Madame Lavatsky and the Golden Dawn uh, Magical Group, and so on and so forth. So again, the position in the solar system of those outer planets, I think… And also one other point about that. The further out you go, the broader the orbits are that are, are circumscribed by those outer planets. So they represent broader concerns, collective concerns, generational concerns. And I liken it to the fact that, for example, elephants can hear broader wavelengths. Uh, We we can't hear when an elephant is speaking to another elephant two miles away, but they can. They hear those broader wavelengths. When you see a very strong connection into the outer planets in someone's chart, Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto, it's like those people can hear those broader wavelengths. So you take someone that is got a strong Uranus, let's say on the on the the ascendant, for instance, they can hear those broader wavelengths when it comes to things like social activism, social concerns, technological factors like uh, Walt Disney, with, had Sun conjuncting Uranus, and Heisenberg had Sun conjunct born on the same day as Disney, and a uh, Neptune is more spiritual factors or artistic factors, like the singer Sting has Moon conjuncting Neptune and. You see all the time um, uh, look, Christian preachers that have strong Neptunes and Pluto, for instance. You see that very strong in the charts of um, like Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and Mick Jagger for that matter. This sense of it's you're collected, you're 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 tuned into this collective wavelength that is very different from, let's say, the inner planets. In that sense,
0: yeah. Or or sometimes they can become. Unwittingly or un, you know, in in a way that they they're not necessarily fully on board with the symbol for an entire generation or entire generation of generations change. Like um, I always think of uh, Kurt Cobain had late Virgo rising with that Pluto Uranus conjunction conjunct his ascendant, and and the way in which um, the sort of uh, rise of Nirvana in in 1991 or so with the release of this one album. Just signaled this entire sea change in music in the rise of grunge in the early 1990s virtually overnight. But then it was something that he became very uncomfortable with as a somewhat sensitive and like private person. He sort of struggled with fame and struggled with being uh, that popular basically overnight.
1: Yeah. And so let's say a person's got a Mercury trine Uranus that's very different from Mercury square Uranus or oppose Uranus, because that person with the square or the opposition is going to be more at odds with the collective wavelength, whereas the trine, for instance, is going to be more in tune with it. Now, you, that's very tricky. To, you can't put judgments on that, like uh, Ben Franklin, I believe, had Mercury oppose Uranus, and he was a revolutionary. He was ahead of his time, so it may simply be the square or the, the beautiful mind scientist. I forget his name. He had Mercury square Uranus, I believe. It uh, it doesn't mean they can't. It may be that they're ahead of their time. It may be that they're not synced into the current zeitgeist, but they they're somehow they're tuned into that broader sense, but not necessarily in timing.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so to wrap up that this section just talking about the properties of the planets. Here's a image of Mars just to demonstrate that visually of just like how large this. Like gash or, or or canyon or scar across the face of the Mars it of Mars is of the planet, and how just visually sort of striking that is from a symbolic standpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a nice picture.
0: Yeah, it is a pretty good picture. I think it's from NASA or it's like a rendering from NASA. Um, so there's that. We mentioned Uranus, uh, of course, being one of the the only planets that does something very unique or odd and rotating on its side and and in a similar way. Uranus when it's prominent in the chart can often show indicate an area where a person stands out or does something that seems unique or weird or idiosyncratic either in their personal life or or comes to represent that in some broader sense if it's tied in with career matters or something like that.
1: Well, let me add Pluto to that mix because Pluto has a very eccentric orbit in a different way. Pluto is inclined to the axial plane of the the solar system 17 degrees. And it's so eccentric in that way that it can actually cross over the orbit of Neptune, and I take that as meaning that there is an extremism to Pluto, that I think you see in in when it's um, strongly uh, indicated in someone's chart that it's it's an all or nothing. It's a little bit similar to the Pluto or the Scorpio energy. It tends to be, you know, all saint, all sinner sort of thing. But um, and the other thing about Uranus, by the way, is I, as I recall, it re, it's it got a reverse rotation as well, and so does Venus. So in Venus, for instance, the days are longer than the years because, it, because of the fact that it's rotating in a reverse direction for whatever reason, which says there's something peculiar about Venus in terms of what it symbolizes as well as Uranus.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's see, going back to one of the previous things, one of your arguments about astrology being having to do with and being based on a mechanism more closely aligned with something like synchronicity or symbolism where other things, you have several other arguments. One of them is how it can indicate events. Actually, this is from another, but you point out like symbolic techniques such as secondary progressions and how that's clearly more based on symbolism rather than, you know, transits where somebody could almost argue that that has to do with some sort of immediate you know, influence the planet is having at specific points in the life, whereas secondary progressions is um, working from more of a symbolic standpoint.
1: Yeah, it's more mathematical and more symbolical. And that's one of the reasons, again, why anyone who is trying to explain astrology in strictly mechanistic terms, including quantum physics, I think is tilting at windmill, windmills. Because how do you explain those symbolic factors? Or you take for instance, uh, perfections; These are symbolic techniques that you really can't quantify. And um, progressions are an example, a day for a year progressions, for instance, of you move, someone's born on a given day and you want to see what's happening in their 30th year, you look 30 days after in the ephemeris. Again, how would you explain that to a scientist? How would you explain that to a materialist? There's a lot of symbolic factors like that even for example the divisions of the uh, zodiac into 12 whether you're a siderealist or a tropicalist how do you explain 12 no i've i've talked to scientists about these i've heard what they say they say it's an arbitrary number why not eight divisions of the zodiac why not just four big signs it's it's again the, there are archetypal underpinnings here to astrology that go way beyond mechanistic physical sort of explanations in my opinion
0: sure yeah um and yet there are some you know astronomical things that are relevant in influencing life on earth in different ways when it comes to the the seasons of the sun uh, and different things like that so there's this weird tension throughout the history of astrology between the let's say i don't want to say scientific side but the more mechanistic side versus the more symbolic or mystical side in, in some sense. And and in, that's one of the weird things about astrology is it seems to cross that threshold or those boundaries and sort of straddle those that line in, in a very unique or weird way.
1: Right. And so for, I'm not denying that excuse me, that there's there's not a gravit a gravitational effect from the moon. That's I think pretty clear. But that's not it's not all about gravity. Uh, so there is gravitational there are solar flares that affect us and all this but but to to limit astrology just to those physical properties i think is a big mistake
0: yeah so some other obviously symbolic areas of astrology one of one of the ones that you listed is charts still working after a person's death
1: yeah which is a a, a fascinating thing and it has been known about for a long time the fact that You can look at Abraham Lincoln's chart at the time someone robbed his tomb, and you'll see some aspects firing at that time. Or, for instance, uh, Joseph Campbell. He uh, died before his Uranus return, but on his Uranus return is when he became world famous through the interviews with Bill Moyers on uh, PBS, the Power of Myth series. And there are countless examples like that of people, especially I like to look at it in terms of when movies... uh, when Film biographies are made of people after they're dead. You'll, for example, the, the the movie about the life of Vincent Van Gogh that came out a few years ago with um, Willem Dafoe playing Vincent Van Gogh. That was under Van Gogh's Neptune opposition, as I recall, uh, when Neptune reached the opposite point, or it might be the re- Neptune return. I forget. And then the same thing with the James James Brown a biography came out on film a few years ago and there again you saw aspects in James Brown's chart after he had died so how do you explain that scientifically it's it's a symbolic system the chart lives on in a way in a way that uh, is is not physical it's 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 almost like uh, the chart is an imprint in the in the big mind the cosmic mind
0: yeah something i tweeted recently thinking about some of the Platonic influence of astrology early on, and the notion in Platonism and Stoicism that the um, the cosmos is a living, conscious entity. Is if that's true, then to some extent, uh, the birth chart would represent what the cosmic animal or the cosmic mind was thinking at the moment that each person was born, or what the inner internal state of like reflection and contemplation was at that moment which then could explain why um, each of us then manifests some of those energies in different ways in our lives.
1: Yeah. And I would maybe take it a little bit further and to say that um, in the same way that our, and this was the subject of my first book, uh, The Waking Dream, in the same way that our dreams are symbolic, our waking lives are symbolic, and we're living essentially inside of someone's dream. Now, whether you want to call that like Plotinus did the one or God or big mind uh it doesn't matter it's it's this the outer world has the, the properties of a symbolic dream, just like our nightly dreams do, but on a much grander scale, and our dreams are entwined in this larger dream mm. wheels within wheels
0: yeah, uh going back to you mentioned van Gogh, and that's one of my favorite examples of somebody whose chart really does continue to work astrologically in terms of techniques and live on even after his death because he's one of the most um, striking cases of somebody who didn't achieve success during his lifetime and actually hardly sold any paintings during his lifetime even though that was something he really focused on and slaved away learning and teaching himself how to do and how to improve until his last days. But it was really um it wasn't until after his death that his brother's uh, wife ended up promoting his work and eventually being successful in making him known worldwide. And he became a famous painter, basically post-mortem. And you can see in some of the career techniques that I use for determining eminence, like Zodiac releasing a lot of spirit, that he actually enters some of the eminent periods when his work did become known decades after his death so it's like the chart really does represent something about that person and and who they were and what their life represented and the influence it had in the world but that chart um does continue to stay operative after the person's death sort of almost forever in some sense that each of our lives sort of echoes in in eternity in some way
1: and i'll add a, a slightly different point to that which is that You'll have a, a planetary aspect like a stellium of planets coming together, or an outer planet aspect like Uranus conjuncting Pluto, and those—it's like ringing a bell. When does a bell stop ringing? Or when you shout into the Grand Canyon and you hear an echo back? You know, it's, what is the cutoff point for the influence of a, of an aspect? And so Beethoven was born under this extraordinary grand shrine of the outer three planets, like like Napoleon was. Uh, a year apart as i recall and yet every time you turn on the radio and you listen to beethoven your that chart is alive the moment that beethoven was born is still resonating into the present through the through our actions through our creations through our you know positive or negative acts so we live on the ch- the chart the planets the aspects live on long past their shelf life so to speak
0: yeah or it makes me think of light and how you know, if light or a signal is like sent out from Earth, that it can just like travel across the galaxy or galaxies for for a very long period of time. Um, so an- another point, uh, this is one in ancient. I found in like a, I think it was like a third or fourth century text that was also arguing about astrology being symbolic. One of the points that it made was how the birth chart can indicate supposedly, or at least astrologers treated as indicating, sometimes events prior to birth like for example having to do th- with the parents or the parents' situation or status or character or other things like that which are things that are already in some instances predefined before the person is even born so it's it's it doesn't make sense to think about the planets causing that to happen at the moment of birth but instead simply reflecting the situation in the native's life at that time
1: yeah that reminds me of a client i had once where the parent um, the father had been Subject. I won't go into details, but had been subject to a huge disgraceful situation in in the public eye. And this client of mine had a. I don't recall this had been years ago, but had like Saturn in the tenth house, which you know it was something like a Saturn conjunct Neptune in the tenth house or something. But it showed that was shown in the person's chart in terms of some kind of problem with the father's reputation. And again, it was it happened before the person was born. So how do you explain that in, in regular mechanistic terms?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, or which, go ahead.
1: It it raises an interesting question. I have a chapter on this in in one of those books about. It's it's a, a, a very problematic question that astrology raises, which is, you'll you'll have someone come to you, who's had a very traumatic life maybe a difficult family. And you see it in the chart. Maybe you'll see uh, some Saturn conjunct Pluto in the fourth house or whatever it might be, in Scorpio, for instance. And so the person comes to you and they've had this difficult life and they, uh, this happened to me where the person was complaining about what their mother and father had done to screw them up. And yet that pattern was there at the moment they were born in the horoscope. So, you you don't want to blame the victim but by the same token that was there they came in with that pattern so where does that really come from in other words the the traumas and the difficulties that person has as they grow up you know this is this is obviously a tricky area to talk about but again that you come in with certain patterns in your chart that manifest in your life and it's up to you how you react to those
0: yeah. I think um it's interesting. I mean, one of the differences I've always thought about is how you can you know you could have two people born at the hospital at the same time with the same difficult fourth house placements, but each of them go home with different parents and get locked into a different family unit, let's say, or living situation growing up, where each of those parents has a different birth chart that's going to interact either more or less favorably, or, let's say, In a way that's more either supportive or more um, unsupportive in certain ways of some of the basic placements in a person's birth chart. And I think that's one of the ways, one of the reasons why people can manifest some of the same placements so wildly differently, because it has to do with that nature versus nurture situation of some of our best qualities can either be. you know, encouraged in our early living situation, or in the other instances, maybe some of our worst qualities could be encouraged and and exacerbated rather than sort of tamed and uh, worked with in a more constructive fashion.
1: It also, I think, uh, connects to the culture you're born into. I I did an interview uh, for Mountain Astrologer many years ago with Noel Till, and we were talking about how you have to take into account the, the cultural background of the person. So, for instance. Uh, a person who's got a Jupiter conjuncting Sun and Leo born in Japan is going to manifest that energy very differently than a person with Sun conjuncting Jupiter in America, for instance. And so that can mod- modify the the way the energy manifests in a person's life as well. Mm,
0: right. Yeah. So um, one other area where you pointed out that astrology is obviously working on symbolism, and this is critical to understanding some of the basic techniques is in retrogradation, for example, as being a phenomenon, an observational phenomenon that's entirely relevant to the observer. Which is interesting because that points to what. While well, some skeptics and scientists will point to that as just like this is not even a real phenomenon because it's just a visual, visually apparent, accidental phenomenon rather than some sort of actual, some specific, more concrete thing. Um, that actually points to one of the basic principles of astrology and being tied in with symbolism and um, omenology and things like that.
1: Yeah, there's a phenomenological aspect to it that is heavily geocentric in the sense of uh, if someone tries to convince you that there is a force coming from the planets that is causing astrology to happen, just ask them about Mercury retrograde. I think most astrologers agree, though we might disagree on how strong it is, but I don't think many astrologers would disagree that it has an impact. Well, how can that be a force related sort of thing if indeed it's purely an illusion based on the Earth's perspective? Because if Mercury isn't actually going backwards, it's strictly something that's from our standpoint here on the Earth. So it's not there's nothing there that you can relate to a force emanating from the planet.
0: Right. And it's not just that it's geocentric per se, but it actually goes back to a more basic principle that's fundamental to all forms of divination, which is that everything is relative to the perspective and the location of the observer and how things appear relative to the perspective of the observer or the one experiencing the omen at that specific moment in time from their specific vantage point. That is what matters. And we're not necessarily looking at things from like a universal standpoint, but instead, the subjective is, is what's most important?
1: Yeah. So for instance, the ancient Greeks and the uh, ancient Romans believed in looking at the flight of ber- augurs. And the word inauguration, by the way, goes all the way back to augury and olenological interpretation. Uh, there are a lot of these vestiges that come down to us in our language like disaster and augury, inauguration. But the ancient Greeks and Romans would look at the direction a bird is flying by as symbolic. But a person standing on the other side of that bird is going to see it going from right to left, whereas I'm going to see it going from left to right. And so that makes a fundamental difference in the meaning of that that uh, symbol. So the, as you said, it's the perspective of the of the individual that determines what the meaning of that thing is for that person.
0: Yeah. So this is really crucial when it comes to another subtopic we're going to touch on at some point, which is exoplanet astrology or What happened? The question that comes up frequently that I get all the time, which is what happens when astrologers go outside of Earth and either start, for example, colonizing other planets such as Mars, or let's say at some point end up in a completely different solar system um, that has a different planetary setup or a different planetary order, what have you. Does the way it's usually phrased as a question is, does astrology still work? or are our signs this are the 12 signs the same? But part of the answer is is no. You'd have to construct an entirely new system of astrology relative to that planet and relative to that vantage point. And but knowing that from the start that that the entire basis of it is that everything is relative to the observer and their location seems like one of the fundamental starting points.
1: Yeah. And so let's say you go to a planet that doesn't have a tilt on the axis like the earth does. You suddenly don't have a tropical zodiac because the tropical zodiac is based on the seasons of the tilt of the Earth's axis. So you're left with the sidereal zodiac on, let's say, another planet. Uh, But let's say you're in a different solar system. It might be an entirely different set of constellations than what we have here. So you divide divide those up into 12. Uh, Or if there are no moons like on Venus and Mercury, there's no moons, whereas there are two moons on Mars. Uh, and the question that comes up for me is: If you find a different solar system in a different uh, part of the galaxy, would you have a Saturn-like planet in that solar system and a Jupiter-like planet in that solar system? A Mercury? Would they be comparable in their meanings? Would each solar system have certain archetypal principles? Because we we want to think that our planets—Mercury, Venus, Mars, Earth, Jupiter, etc.—have an archetypal basis. If that's really true, then would that not suggest that those planets in another solar system would have some kind of meaning comparable to ours? And the sun, what would be the meaning of a sun in a different solar system? You know, we look at fixed stars. What's that?
0: What it makes me think of is the way that uh, I was watching like the Changing of the Gods series, the documentary that's coming out in January. I think you watched it recently too. But one of the things, they did that was interesting. Really early was in the first episode. Was they were talking a little bit about the myth the Greek and Roman mythology, which the planets are named after. But then they also immediately started talking about other mythologies and other cultures where they have similar archetypes, but sometimes different stories, or where you can see similarities in how certain gods and goddesses are treated in other traditions but there's also sometimes major differences. And it makes me think that that's how it might be in like another solar system where you might find resonances with certain planets and certain archetypes, but there would also be some, some major differences.
1: Yeah, I agree. And uh, Or you even take the Sun and the Moon, and this is often brought up about most occultists would see the Moon as feminine and the Sun as masculine. And yet, in German, the the D and dare you know, that's the moon is considered in the language system in German as masculine, and the sun is feminine. Uh, I mean, how much do you take those into account? And for me, it's, it's not a big issue because both luminaries have qualities of the opposite luminaries. So I don't see it as as a cut and dry thing. But and by the way, I want to add one other point to the sun moon I, that I wanted to add before and I forgot it which is that this is to my understanding the only point in the solar system where the sun and the moon are the same size, which makes eclipses like we had earlier this morning possible.
0: Yeah, I stayed up really late last night. I'm pretty out of it today after watching that lunar eclipse last night in Taurus. And that was something I was really thinking about was just from our vantage point on Earth, the Moon is the exact same size as the Sun in the sky, and that's actually really important relative to our perspective.
1: Yeah, the the, the Sun is four hundred times farther away. It's some equation like this, and the Moon is four hundred whatever that is. The point is that it's it's such a close harmony, but it's not going to be that way forever. Eventually, the Moon is moving further and further back, you know, millennia by millennia. And at some point, the moon's going to be much farther back. So we're at a point in history, uh, I don't know how many thousand years on either side, when they are in a balance with each other. And there's tremendous importance in the occult traditions placed on something called the marriage of the sun and the moon, the balancing the polarities. So we may be at a point in history now that's very precious in terms of it, there may be a possibility of some kind of awakening that's taking place at this stage in humanity's history that may not be possible, you know, twenty thousand years from now in in the same exact way anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. I got off track there a little bit. You were talking about something else, and I took a detour there,
0: yeah, that's all right. That's another good, really um striking one, where again, it just further drives home that point that the perspective of the observer is, what's important, and from our vantage point, the quality of the Sun and Moon in size from our vantage point um, gives them a sort of parity and equality in the astrological system as being sort of two sides of the same coin in some sense.
1: Yeah. And about the qualities, you're talking about the phenomenology of the Sun and the Moon. Um, the Moon is a local body. The Sun is is a more objective body. And what I mean by that is one of the first things I learned Uh, when I was studying astrology was that the Moon is a subjective amplifier. The Sun is an objective amplifier. The moon, Whatever the Moon touches in the horoscope is going to tend to be something that the person experiences themselves more so that isn't as visible to the outer world. Things that aspect your Sun in the birth chart tend to be things that are visible to the world. They're more objective. And that's, I think, reflected in the fact that the Moon is a local body and the Sun is is way out there. Everybody sees the Sun, but not s- someone on uh, the planet Saturn, if someone could live on Saturn, uh, would not be affected or would not see the Moon of the Earth in the same way we do. So again, there's that phenomenology that I think gives us clues.
0: Yeah. Or, or even just for other very literal manifestations of the Moon, the Moon representing your home and your living situation and the Moon literally being the closest celestial body to us, um right next to Earth and and that symbolically representing our, our sort of home and living situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah. All right. Um so I wanted to move on to some other topics. One, it's kind of tied in with this one that we just mentioned, which is the stations, the Mercury retrograde stations is other planetary stations and just the power of stationary points, both Personal and in mundane astrology. And I know this is something that you've written about and, and like to emphasize.
1: Uh, one of my teachers, uh, a Chicago born yogi named uh, Goswami Kriyananda, referred to stations as having a branding iron effect. And I thought that was a, a really good way to put it because it impresses itself that much more by standing still so long. And so when you see a Pluto or a Neptune or a, any station point, you tend to see that energy amplified in the in the collective or in the person's chart so you look at someone's individual chart and you see like Neil Armstrong born on a Uranus station point uh the Dalai Lama on a Jupiter station point etc and in terms of cultural events uh it's uncanny how many times you see these things uh, manifest like uh, when John F Kennedy Jr uh, John F Kennedy senior I mean back in 61 he spoke about he gave that famous speech talking about going to the moon. And that was on the day I think that Jupiter turned direct in Aquarius, which is very futuristic, that expansive vision sort of thing. Or uh, when the um I'm old enough to remember the uh, Watergate scandal under the Nixon administration. And that really began when the group of um, uh, they were called the plumbers, curiously enough. Were caught at the Watergate Hotel, and that was under a Pluto station point, which seems to be very fitting. And uh, or like when uh, it was a few years ago that these twelve kids got stuck in a cave in Thailand, and uh, with their their football coach. And the day they got rescued was the day that Jupiter went. I think it was direct in Scorpio. You know that that, that it the symbolism fits beautifully, and you see this time and again with cultural events, or like the. Uh, I believe that the uh, Pentagon Papers was under a Pluto and Uranus station point, and uh, Wounded Knee, the massacre in 1890, was under a Saturn station point. Well, interestingly, Woodstock was under a Saturn station point in Taurus, which is funny because it, you, the images I have of Woodstock was people rolling in mud, and there were all these problems trying to get it off the ground. In fact, the people broke down the fences and it just became a total washout, except culturally it became a very powerful meme in the culture, you might say.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the points you made that I thought was really good is that sometimes there'll be certain planets in a person's chart where they'll just stand out and they'll sort of um, be way louder than they should or almost have an exclamation mark next to them and people won't really be clear why because it's not like an angular planet or it's not heavily aspected or something like that. But if it is stationary, if if it's pretty close to stationing retrograde or direct, that itself can be the reason why. And I thought that was really poignant and fascinating and, and true observation that I found as well. And that goes back to a rule. Um, I know one of the things you pointed out in your article is that sometimes the issue with people overlooking stationary points is they don't realize if they're just looking at a, at a, sta- a computer screen that the planet's really close to stationing. But if you look at an ephemeris, um, the ancient range, they would say if a person was born within seven days of a planet stationing retrograde or direct, that was the range more or less to pay attention to or watch out for. And if you look at an ephemeris for the month that you were born, you can see pretty clearly if a planet stationed retrograde or direct within seven days of your birth.
1: It's one of the problems of computer uh, readouts. You don't necessarily have that sense of the station. And Pluto can be in the same degree for almost two months, if not more than two months. And so it's it's branded into that degree, you might say. And a good example of what you just brought up was the teacher I studied with in Florida, Shelley Trimmer, was an extremely independent, futuristic, scientific sort of fellow, uh, in addition to his occult studies. And I could not figure out his Uranus was not that powerful in the natal chart. And one day I decided to look up He was born in 1917, a Scorpio in 1917. And the day that um, uh, he was born was right on a Uranus station, a few days apart from Dizzy Gillespie by the way, which is interesting because Dizzy Gillespie was this avant-garde sort of jazz trumpeter that was into quantum physics and all this sort of thing. Or you take uh, what accounts for Tom Cruise's extraordinary luck. For instance, uh, I remember even back in the 80s thinking, I, I remember talking to someone and they were saying, it's unbelievable how this guy gets all the roles and how he's he has doors open. Yeah, he's ambitious, but he's not the greatest actor. Yet somehow he's extraordinarily lucky. And if you look at his chart, he's got a grand trine, but there's a Jupiter station. So one of the points I make in, in my essay on the stations is that whatever aspects are being made By a stationing planet, become amplified that much more so as well. So, you have this grand shrine that is in Tom Cruise's chart that is that much stronger because of the Jupiter station, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Let me bring up his chart really quickly to show that I don't remember if this is a, I didn't look at my data, how our birth time is for this, but I guess it's not fully relevant if we're just looking at the planet and if it's close to stationing. So, Here's Tom Cruise's chart July 3rd, 1962, uh, using a not sure time of 9.32 PM in Syracuse, New York. We see Ju- Jupiter at 12 degrees of Pisces, and it says that it's retrograde here in solar fire. But I have this little table, and this is why I use this layout that I designed for solar fire, and I'll, i have links to it that people can download from my YouTube channel. But in the bottom right corner, I have a table that says if a planet is retrograde or direct, so we'll look at Jupiter in the bottom right table, it says what its last stationary sign was and how recently its last station was. And it said that Jupiter stationed 1.7 days ago in the sign of Pisces. So he was born literally just 1.7 days after Jupiter stationing retrograde. And another way that you can see this is just animating the chart in a program like Solar Fire or Astro Gold and moving it backwards, let's say one day, and it switches to an S next to Jupiter, which is stationary, or another day back, and it's stationary or two days back. And you can see that it's it was still direct technically just two days before he was born. So that's another way that you can identify stationary planets, even just using a program is by animating them.
1: That's good. I didn't know about that.
0: Yeah, it's kind huh. of helpful. But stations are super important. You mentioned the Sort of forward-thinking Jupiter station in Aquarius, and what was that for again? Because that brings up that was something. for
1: John F. Kennedy. It was an iconic moment in the '60s when John F. Kennedy gave a talk saying that we're going to land on the moon by, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, okay. which was considered outrageous uh, by some people uh, to think that in eight years, actually, I think it was seven they were going to um uh, get this all together and jupiter i think was uh, stationing in aquarius it was i forget the date but it was in 1961
0: okay i like that because i just noticed um one or two of those last month in october when jupiter made its final direct station both jupiter and saturn station direct in aquarius in october of um 2021 here and one of the announcements not long after that time. I think within a week or so or about a week later was the announcement by the Facebook founder, Mark Zuckerberg, about changing the name of the company to Meta because they were gearing it up for this thing that they're anticipating, which is the the quote-unquote metaverse and all the different things connected with virtual reality and other things like that being the next wave of the future in terms of not just social networking, but um, commerce and technology and money like Bitcoin and um, images like NFTs and all the different things tied in with that. And what's funny about you mentioning the moonshot thing and Kennedy announcing that is that must have sounded pretty farcical that by the end of the decade we would a person would be walking on the moon, I'm guessing at that stage in the early 1960s. But then lo and behold, like less than a decade later, they had actually pulled it off in, in what like 68 or 69.
1: Sixty-nine, yeah, July of sixty-nine.
0: Yeah, yeah that's so gr- that's a
1: great catch about the metaverse. I missed that somehow.
0: Yeah, well, it's like I caught that because that was also we picked that date range for some of our best electional charts of the month, specifically for Aquarius rising charts with Jupiter and Saturn stationing in Aquarius. And I thought it was weird because also within twenty-four hours of that, um, there was also an announcement in the news that Obama had broken ground on his presidential library in Chicago which they had been planning for many years. And of course, Obama famously has Aquarius rising and Jupiter in Aquarius. So it's curious and interesting that in his transiting chart, what happened was transiting Jupiter, he was having a Jupiter return and Jupiter stationed uh, direct in Aquarius in his first house um, when that presidential library was essentially founded.
1: Huh. You know, the whole thing with Jupiter, it's very tricky in terms of... um... You can't place value judgments on these in terms of good or bad because you had the Dalai Lama, Donald Trump, and Adolf Hitler were all born under Jupiter stations, right? And like you take Hitler for instance, and it was Jup—I think it was Jupiter conjuncting Moon, his Moon in in tropical uh, Capricorn—and so he had this expansive vision, Uh, you know, a thousand years of the Reich and all this sort of thing. And so it was expansive in a governmental way, but you know, it wasn't exactly a benefic sort of thing. Whereas in the case of the Dalai Lama, now you can, you know, I'm not going to get into politics here with Trump, but again, there's an expansive vision there. Whether you see it as a good expansive or a bad expansive, that's up to you. But uh, I wanted to throw that into the mix too.
0: Yeah, no, Trump is actually one of the most compelling contemporary examples of station because that. Jupiter was stationing the day he was born and that's I, I've always treated that or thought of that as one of his hidden greatest um that's the most positive one of the most positive sort of subtle and easy to overlook things about his chart but it's one of the most positive things in his chart is that Jupiter station on the day he was born the other one that people actually often overlook is it wasn't just Jupiter that was stationing Neptune Neptune, Neptune was in 2.7 if you look at the table in the bottom right Neptune was just 2.7 days away from stationing so he was having a, a jupiter station and a neptune station in his third house of communication when he was born and that of course ends up being part of his his sort of secret um superpower in some ways
1: well it, that also ties into exaggeration
0: yeah and yeah. i'm not
1: going to i i i don't want to say lies or whatever but certainly there's been around him at the very least issues of honesty and trust and all this sort of thing and exaggeration sure. so
0: yeah and and his different attempts to do things with that. so uh, Yeah, so we don't have to get into that, but that's a whole thing. So good contemporary examples. So I think that makes the point pretty well that stations are important as sometimes secret. I always say it puts like an exclamation mark next to the planet in the chart, and it's something that you should pay attention to as being um, much more prominent than the planet might look otherwise according to other factors if a planet is within seven days especially of stationing. So that's true in natal charts it's also something to pay attention to in transits when a planet stations, um, especially if it's stationing close to a natal planet through, uh, let's say, like a major aspect. And then also finally, as we, you've mentioned, in mundane astrology, stations can be important as well.
1: Well, let me add one other point, and that is, like we talked about with Trump, double stations or even triple, like uh, Bernie Sanders was born under a triple station. Which was Mars, Uranus, and Saturn, which is the same date, uh, curiously enough, as the siege of Leningrad starting in Russia. Uh, But there's a blending. I regard double or triple station points as having a quality of like a conjunction. So you take Amy Winehouse, for example, had Venus, uh, Venus station, and Neptune station. Jimmy Page of of Led Zeppelin had Mars and Neptune station. Look at the difference there in terms of Amy Winehouse had it was more of a Venus-Neptune energy, that bluesy sort of jazzy singing style, whereas you have uh, uh, Jimmy Page as more of a hard driving Martian sort of uh, element there. So I think you can look at those double or triple stations as blending their influences. Mm.
0: Yeah, here's Amy Winehouse's chart. So she has Gemini rising and she has Venus at 23 Leo, and it's stationing uh, direct at 23 Leo in her chart. What was the other planet, Neptune? And uh,
1: Neptune. Where are my glasses here?
0: Neptune's at 26 Sag, and it's just six days from stationing there. So Venus is actually v- within three degrees of a trine with Neptune. That's right. Pretty, yeah, so pretty that's good. a
1: really strong Neptune Venus energy no matter how you slice it.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, so that's pretty good. That actually might bring us to another topic I wanted to touch on, that you mentioned in an article of yours that I was reading last night, which is one of the things that you think is important and and you found to be important in chart interpretation very early in your studies was looking at the most elevated planet in a chart, right? Yeah. And I think this is in an essay in Stargates.
1: Yeah. Again, there's no one thing that defines a whole chart, but it is uncanny how often you will see a person defined to a certain extent by the planet that's highest in their chart. Yeah, you had a funny
0: um, rectification story because you actually in your books, which I really enjoy, and your essays have a lot of funny anecdotes about trying to get birth times from different celebrities over the years, which I thought was really funny and and relatable hearing some of the people you either successfully or, or unsuccessfully asked for their birth times.
1: Yes, like I called up Isaac Asimov when his name was still in the uh, Manhattan directory, because I wanted to know his birth time. Right. And I and he picked up the phone, and this was in the 70s. And then he, by the way, it wasn't long after that that he took his name out of the you know public directory. Yeah, he didn't but
0: sound super interested in the topic, from what you read. No,
1: I tried engaging him in a talk about it, which was a mistake. But uh, he was very nice, considering that I was interrupting him from and writing there his were- millionth book.
0: There was another science fiction writer that was actually more more favorable to it, it who's actually a movie of yeah. his just came Frank out Herbert. Last
1: month. Frank Herbert, yeah. Yeah it's the uh, author, I, I,
0: author of the Dune series.
1: Right. And I went to a book signing downtown in Chicago and spoke to him for quite some time. And his he said his wife was a an avid astrologer and did his chart and all this. And he, he gave me his birth time. And uh, one other point though about Asimov, which is interesting, he didn't know the day he was born, let alone the time he was born because he said i was raised in russia and we didn't keep good records back then so when you're dealing with charts of people from some countries at certain times in history it's very hard sometimes to get a, even the date of birth let alone the uh, time
0: yeah and was the which is really frustrating but was the herbert frank herbert walker the time you got is it the same that's on astro.com now which is like no, 7:30 a.m. it's
1: it's off it was i think 7:18 is what he gave me
0: Oh, interesting! So the
1: time is off a little bit on the astro.com um, time. So make of that what you will. It reminds me that there was the time that I asked, and this is—I I still don't know what to make of this. But I once asked uh, Buckminster Fuller for his birth time, and he had a very interesting response. He said he paused a long time and he said, "You know, I always regretted never asking my mother that." And then someone pointed out to me on Facebook how. If you go to uh, Astro.com, they have his birth time, and it's I think it's an A category accuracy on on uh, the lowest Rodden uh rating. So I don't know what that what happened. Maybe someone found it after he died, or maybe after I asked him, he tracked it down. I don't know what happened there.
0: Yeah, I'll have to look at the source notes. I mean, there's some problems right now with Astro database and certain things of. There's some websites that are putting out fake times that they're they're citing books and magazines and articles and saying they got an exact time from this article. But then when data researchers look up those books, like they're not finding any times there. And I've found this a few times. And some of those times are finding their way into Astro Data Bank. So it's kind of an issue um, that I'm trying to figure out how to deal with and I'm hoping the community can deal with in the not too distant future. But We'll have to look at that one and see what the source notes say.
1: Didn't you write an article once or feature an episode on astrotheme.com and how the problems with astrotheme because a lot of people go to that?
0: Yeah, that's the one that I found It seemed to be inventing birth times and I don't think anybody should take any times from astrotheme seriously because they've been caught fabricating birth times multiple times at this point. But what's sad is I don't think Astro Data Bank is taking this seriously because they're still accepting birth times from Astro theme, which I unfortunately am worried is going to lead to some false times being perpetuated for generations or for centuries.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's a whole. Separate side topic. Are there any other famous people that you successfully got birth times from or that you asked for their birth time?
1: Yeah, uh, but the uh, Patty Smith, but that I discovered that she was already, um, it was December 31st, I think, and I forget the time, but uh, she was very nice about it. And uh, golly, I, I called up, I couldn't get Bob Dylan, so I called Bob Dylan's mother in, in Minnesota and got, uh, she didn't remember the exact time, but There was a I won't say the name of the astrologer, but there was a well-known astrologer who wrote a book in the 70s. He had rectified Dylan's chart and had him as being born a little after dawn, and that didn't feel right to me. I intuitive. Oh, this gets back to the the most elevated.
0: That was actually the starting point for the elevated planet. So the the setup for that was in the sixties, Dylan was huge. He was a huge musician and everybody wanted to know his birth time, but there was no birth time and there was actually a debate about it. And some people were saying that he was born just after sunrise based on rectification, but that didn't sit right with you?
1: I had a feeling it was an intuitive hunch, and sometimes you do have these intuitive uh, hits on something. I felt like he had Neptune as the highest planet in his chart. And um, lo and behold, you know, I called up his mother. It took me a month to track it down by calling all the Zimmermans in Minnesota that I could find around Hibbing. And uh, spoke to her for about twenty minutes. She was very nice, and she said, "I don't remember the exact time, but it was sometime in the evening." Which helped because I knew at least it wasn't morning or afternoon. And then Rick Tarnas, uh, I guess, knew Dylan's ex-wife Sarah, and he had uh, came up with the exact time off of a birth certificate, and it did have Neptune as the highest planet. And uh, you see, you see Neptune high in the charts of a lot of people that are musicians. I think uh, Jimi Hendrix had Neptune high. Um, uh, like I said, you, Neptune you often see in the charts of preachers or religious figures or mystics, musicians, artists, etc. Uh, so yeah.
0: So here's Bob Dylan's chart based on that birth certificate time and it gives him 20 degrees of Sagittarius rising and Neptune at 24 degrees of Virgo in the ninth quadrant house or the 10th whole sign house conjunct the North Node at 29 Virgo. And that is the closest planet to the degree of the midheaven, which is at 17 degrees of Libra. And so, for you, that actually, when I was reading your article and thinking about this, it brought up an interesting. Question for me. Actually, one of the things it brought up for me is I was reading through and I was like eating a snack, and then suddenly you used my name as, as an example yes. of, <laughs> of Uranus. I, yes. I literally almost like choked on what I was eating at that time because you were like, and astrologer, famous astrologers Rob Hand and Chris Brennan have Uranus as their most elevated planet conjunct the <laughs> midheaven. And that was one of the first times I think I've read my name accidentally in print and, and was surprised. So thanks Congratulations. for the experience. <laughs> Um, so for you, the way that you define that, though the most elevated planet is, you say it's the planet that is the closest to a conjunction with the midheaven in the chart, basically, right?
1: Yeah. Although I think it exerts an influence, even if it isn't the highest planet. For example, I have Uranus in the tenth house. It's not the highest planet in the chart. Um, and just
0: for the record, because I would otherwise show your chart here, but you prefer not to show it, right?
1: Yes. Okay. We won't go into that. But
0: I just wanted to say, for the record, yeah. I'm not. I'm not forgetting to show the chart at this point. Right.
1: Okay. Well I have Uranus high and so you know clearly I'm an astrologer and I've always I've leaned towards more independent professions and that sort of thing and mm. uh so yeah the highest planet in the chart is is really important and and especially if it is well like you take for example some of the people that have Uranus high is Lady Gaga Elvis Presley um uh, Dick Cheney, curiously enough, who was not liberal but he was a lone wolf in terms of his own party, and uh, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, and so on and so forth. It's uh, it's really curious what you find out when you start looking at those elevated planets.
0: Yeah, I'm just pulling up some of the different ones that you're mentioning right now, and so. I guess one of the points then that you're making with Dylan though is that it doesn't necessarily have to be on the midheaven. It just has right. to be the planet that the is highest, essentially closest to the top of the chart or closest so Mick, to the degree of the midheaven.
1: Mick Jagger has his Mars. It isn't that high, but it is the highest planet in the chart. I think it's in the 12th or something. And so his emphasis, there's a Martian quality to his public persona, you might say, that hard driving. He's not a singer of ballads, even though he's written a few. Um, Another one, Iggy Pop has Mars as the highest planet, I believe. What are we looking at here?
0: Here's Mick Jagger. So he has for the audio listeners- Oh, it is higher
1: than I thought. I had a different birth time. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I'm actually not. So this is 6.30 AM and I didn't look at the source, but it's so the Ascendant for the audio listeners is at 4 degrees of Leo and his midheaven is at 11 Aries and his Mars is the closest planet to that midheaven and it's over at 12 degrees of Taurus.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's curious too because he had he he was going for a degree in economics, in uh, in school before he became a, a wild rock star.
0: Mm, okay, yeah, I mean it it raised an issue for me because even though I do pay attention to the degree of the mid heaven, um, I'm otherwise placing that in a whole sign house framework, right. and right. I have it's hard for me to to sort through what the most elevated planet is because I, all of my planets are in the top half of the chart. And so you have a number of different contenders, but Uranus is definitely the closest planet because my rising degree is 17 Aquarius, my midheaven oh, degree yeah. is 5 Sagittarius, and Uranus is at 11 Sagittarius. So if you're defining that based on the degree of the quadrant midheaven, then Uranus is the most angular or highest planet in elevation. And in defensive, if one was going to argue that direction as being the one, it was when Uranus passed over the degree of my Ascendant in 17 Aquarius that I actually discovered astrology and became an astrologer. Um, but then you also, if you're talking about, for example, let's say the equal house Midheaven, which is always 90 degrees from the degree of the Ascendant, that would be 17 Aquarius to 17 Scorpio, which would make Saturn the most elevated planet and I think, you know, a lot of some people that listen to the podcast might argue that I'm more of a Saturnian type figure publicly rather than a Uranian one, although I don't know, I guess it depends.
1: Well, you know, I, I'm not dogmatic about things like house systems or sidereal versus tropical. I tend to, you know, live and let live attitude. I think that different systems can have validity in their own frame of reference, just like Euclidean geometry doesn't negate uh rhein geometry and so on. It's um, So there are ways in which, for example, you've had a very independent career uh, and a technologically oriented one with the Uranus there. So uh, I don't in any way dismiss the whole sign or equal house emphasis on it. I think that it's possible for them to coexist, and that's just my personal opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was just working it through in my head because I hadn't thought about the most elevated planet very much as a technique in a while and i was seeing both sides of that and trying to come to some understanding through my own chart which i could then universalize in others and and was seeing both sides so i think that might be an interesting thing for people to play with and work out in terms of the the difference between the quadrant midheaven and the equal house midheaven as a continuing part of the continuing dialogue also over House systems, and that could be an access point for people trying to figure out how to reconcile, like the whole sign and equal and quadrant house frameworks, for example.
1: I'd be very curious to know, you know, if people decide to kind of experiment with this on their own, uh, what they find in terms of if it's really clear-cut the difference between, let's say, whole sign house system versus Placidus, for instance. Uh, you know, where the one doesn't seem to fit at all and the other does. I'd be curious to get feedback on in terms of what people find.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I see overlapping ways in which both work. I, it would just be nice to, especially if you could come up with, is there a context in which each works where you could at least contextualize what a whole sign uh, placement is telling you versus what a quadrant house placement or Are they just the same? Like one of the ones that was really curious when I did the Noel Till episode last year, that I thought was really interesting and compelling, was I was reading um, an interview with him, and he told told a story about how when he first discovered astrology, he was like watching in the '70s, like an interview show, and some it was like a Tonight Show or something like that, and an astrologer came on and did an interview, and he said the astrologer didn't do a very good job, but he could see that there was something there to astrology, and he turned to his wife and he said. I'm gonna write a bunch of books about astrology, and I'm gonna make a million dollars. And what's really interesting about his birth chart is he has Cancer rising, and the ruler of his ascendant is the Moon, and it's placed in the second whole sign house of finances and money, but it's in the third house in quadrant houses. And Noel Till, of course, did become one of the most prolific authors of the late 20th century and early 21st century, um, and you know was success- successful financially just from that.
1: That's a good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyway, but I was just saying that maybe this elevated, te- elevated planet technique that you're talking about here could be another access point for trying to understand what the different systems are doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I think too, the elevated planet is to some extent represents represents an energy you aspire towards. So a person that, let's say, has Mercury as the highest planet, like the one example I used, I think, in the book, um, a, a young person that had Mercury in Aquarius as the highest planet in the chart, and they had, instead of having a, a Playboy bunny picture or poster on their bedroom wall, they had uh, Carl Sagan, you know, that scientific futuristic quality. And uh, it's this This person was aspiring to kind of be a scientist, to be a kind of a innovator of scientific uh, ideas or technologies. So again, there's there's many ways to interpret that, but it's and it's often the part of you that is most visible to the public. So I had this one client in Tucson who had Saturn and Scorpio in the first house, Scorpio rising, and Jupiter in Leo on the top of the chart, the highest planet. And so the image that this client represented to the world was this flamboyant, he had a Salvador Dali mustache. He was very flamboyant and very outgoing. But privately, there was this deep sort of Saturn-Scorpio intensity. I don't want to say much more than that. But the public image, and I believe they were square because it was Leo to Scorpio, it was actually kind of a conflict between the two, between that That exuberant, happy go lucky public image and that Saturn, Scorpio, somewhat traumatized first house energy. Um, So, again, you know, the first house versus the 10th, you know, there's different ways to interpret this 10th house thing that we're talking about.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, One of the questions I was just looking at my notes that I meant to mention in the earlier segment about new planets is one of the questions that sometimes comes up that's debated in the astrological community that people can take extreme positions on is do planets exert an astrological, quote-unquote, influence even before they're discovered? Because one of the things we, we of course started talking about very early on is how I think all astrologers agree that when a planet is discovered, there are some things that happen in mundane astrology in the world at that time that reflect the nature of that planet. Um, but then there's sometimes a question then of does it only start then or is it already operating prior to that time in some ways?
1: Well, this is where I had a bit of a disagreement uh, in writing. I've never talked to him, but uh, with Jeffrey Cornelius who made the comment that there is no astrology without astrologers, and he likens astrology to a divinatory sort of process whereby you intuitively pick up on things almost like crystal ball reading or tea leaf reading. It's more of a Rorschach, he seems to be implying. And yet The reason why I don't buy that, for one of several reasons, but the most dramatic one is that long before astrologers knew about Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto, you see their influence in world affairs. So, uh, to me, my favorite chapter in Rick Tarnas' book, Cosmos and Psyche, is the one where he talks about the triple conjunction of the outer three planets in uh, the 6th century BC, when there was all this major change in the world, the start of the axial religions and this sort of thing. And yet, none of those three planets were discovered yet. Or you take, for example, the French Revolution in the, 1890s, excuse me, the 1790s, which most astrologers chalk up to this the Uranus opposed Pluto. Now, Uranus was discovered in the previous decade, but Pluto wasn't discovered till 1930. So if indeed Pluto didn't exert an influence till it was formally discovered, then how do you explain the influence of the outer planets through history which is demonstrable? And I do think it becomes more palpable. I do think that when those planets are discovered that they take on more of an immediate sort of impact, but they're still there in the background even long before they're discovered in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I I agree. That's one of the areas where I think um... I always recommend Cornelius's book, and it's one of my fam- my favorite books on astrology, especially the philosophy of astrology, because I think he really does a good job of arguing that astrology does work through symbolism, and that there is something to his argument about astrology's divination. But I sometimes feel like he takes it too far, then in arguing that there is no objective astrology that's actually occurring out there. When I think when you study historical astrology and mundane astrology, you can see that that's kind of objectively false just because there are astrological cycles that do operate um, in concert with human events and world history. One of my favorite ones is the Uranus-Neptune cycle, which I noticed for some reason coincide with um, major revivals and translation projects down through history. About every 170 years, astrologers get really excited about reviving old forms of astrology, and they start translating texts. And then whatever that old form of astrology is that they recover gets merged with whatever the contemporary form of astrology is and creates a new synthesis that lasts for a couple of centuries until the next conjunction. And this happened in 1992 and 1993 under the last conjunction, and that's when Project Hindsight was formed. But that cycle goes back for 2,000 or 3,000 years from what I've seen.
1: Right and it's not that there isn't a divinatory intuitive aspect to astrology because most astrologers have had the experience that cornelius writes about of you you have a chart done for the wrong birth time or even the wrong year you might write it in wrong and yet it still comes out right because you're tapping into something but there are times when that doesn't work like when the skeptics challenged mike uh jeffrey armstrong um to uh, it's on youtube where they they gave the wrong charts that he had calculated for two different subjects, and they didn't fit. The people said, these don't fit. And then they switched the charts, and they said, oh, that one fits. They were trying to pull a fast one on Jeffrey. And it turned out that they weren't the right charts until they were the right charts. The intuitive aspect didn't factor in. Uh, you know. So there are intuitive aspects to it. We've all had those experiences, but that's not that doesn't explain all of it.
0: Yeah, well one of the things I remember Rob Hans saying about that in response to Cornelius's argument is that he's never had an instance where the right chart didn't work better than the wrong chart. And yeah. The right chart always ends up being more compelling and that's one of the reasons why rectification for example can even be attempted or or done in some instances because there is actually a, a birth chart that existed out there that matches the exact moment of the person's birth and that does actually reflect significant events in their life and the nature of their life um, so that you can reverse engineer it sometimes, even if yeah. it's incred- incredibly difficult and and tricky.
1: That's a great point.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So one last thing that I want to mention is you have an article about looking at past transits to anticipate the future. And that's a really major but sometimes overlooked or at least not well articulated technique in the astrological tradition. Um, what is the like basis of that, or what would you say to somebody that was a new student about how that works and how they should use that as a feature of astrology?
1: Yeah, that's really important because like just the other day, yesterday in fact, I had a, a reading with the client where I saw that Saturn was about to cross um uh, his Mars. He natally had a Mars square Uranus. And Saturn was coming along to conjunct the Mars in Aquarius. And so I looked up the last time that aspect had fired. And I said, what happened for you in 1992? And he said that he had a a bad car accident. But he walked away unscathed. Uh, It was bad, but not so bad. He somehow had a lucky thing in his chart, a strong Jupiter. So it didn't hurt him. He, He didn't have any injuries. And so it gave me a sense of what to talk about with this upcoming conjunction because it hadn't happened yet. So when you look back to things when they've happened before, whether it's a Jupiter return or whether it's a Saturn crossing the Sun or a Mars return, you get a real sense of how that energy is manifesting for someone by looking at the past manifestations that happened for that person. It's been an invaluable tool for me. It's actually made a huge difference in terms of whether I've been totally right or totally wrong with someone for example saturn venus is a good uh, example of that saturn crossing someone's venus now that can be make or break that can be someone that can be the dissolution of a existing relationship or that can be the solidifying like getting married so you ask the person what happened last time you got married i mean what happened the last time saturn crossed the venus if they're old enough to have experienced that and you find out, well, I got married then. And you ask them, are you married now? And they say, no, but I'm thinking of it. And then you have a pretty good idea that they're probably going to you know, solidify the commitment in some fashion, even if it isn't literal marriage.
0: Yeah, that's really crucial for most techniques because there's many techniques that do work cyclically where You'll have repetitions of the same or similar placements getting activated. And the chart itself, it's kind of like the chart itself is like a, a round wheel, and each of the planets is like a wind chime. And the transits go around sometimes and then strike the same placement and make a similar sound or make the same sound in dif- different increments, whether it's a 12 year increment of Jupiter or a 30 year increment of Saturn or what have you. But then one of the keys to prediction, one of the most important keys to prediction is that if you want to predict the future, then you need to study the past.
1: Yeah. And so for example, I I had a client a week or two ago that had Uranus. uh, It was conjuncting some planet in their chart and they were old enough that they had experienced the square and the opposition. And you'll see this commonality, a connecting thread when you have an outer planet, whether it's Saturn or Uranus or even Neptune, where uh if you look to see the previous hits that, that that the major hits of that planet earlier in the person's life you'll often see a continuity so for instance a person has their first Saturn return and uh, when they're in their late 20s and then under their second Saturn return there's going to be something connecting it might be that they're retiring after the job they started when they were 29 or it can be a new relationship they they got divorced from someone that they got married to under the first Saturn return. There's really interesting patterns like that, and it's worth you know in fact, that touches on something that you and I were starting to get into uh, previously, which is when a client comes to you, this is this is important for me anyway, where you want to know what they came to you for
0: right. you 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 mentioned this as one of the seven most common mistakes that astrologers make, I think, in an article, right?
1: Yeah, where I like the the one example of this was, I thought I had done such a brilliant job reading this person's chart. I said, this is genius. What I was coming up with. And then at the end of the reading, I said, well, you know, any feedback? And she said, well, you know, it's, I came here to find out about my love life. I wanted, and I didn't touch on that. I was talking about their career, their psychology, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't touch on romance at all. And that's the only thing she wanted to know about. So I've learned my lesson the hard way to kind of get a sense of bearings before the reading what do they want to know because you want to make sure you're touching on what they came to they're paying you for
0: Yeah well cuz sometimes there can be really important events that are happening in a person's life um but they could be not the person's main focus at that time or the person could be like starting important career threads that will grow and become important 10 years later, but they may not be what they want to focus on that day and that exactly. reading. Instead, they want to talk about, you know, this other topic.
1: So I'll tend to touch on both. If I see something that I feel they need to know, I will touch on that, but I want to make sure I'm covering the bases they're paying me to cover.
0: Yeah. So, so that's one of your, um, one of your like rules of the seven most common astrologers make is start by asking the client what brought you in today, what do you, you want to talk about or what would you like to focus on and to make sure that you you address the topics that the client wants to talk about. And then if there's time, get to the other things that you think are important.
1: Right. And the other one that I start off that essay with, as I recall, is-and uh, I learned this from one of my first teachers. He said, make sure the first thing you say when you do a reading is positive. Because if you start off the reading, especially for a first-timer, a client that's never had their chart done before, and the first thing you say is something negative, that's all they're going to hear. And to a certain degree, that's true. They're going to walk away from the reading. And I've had readings where I, I, 90% of it was positive. I'm talking about all the positive things coming up in a person's life with the transits or the progressions, but I may have started with something that was mildly negative. And then at the end of the reading, the person said to me this one time, I'm thinking in particular, they said, isn't there anything good happening for me this coming year? And I had said lots of good things, but they remembered that very first thing that sets an imprint in a person's mind.
0: Yeah, that's really important. It reminds me of like a Vettius Valens in the second century uses this paint analogy to explain why the malefics sometimes seem like they're more powerful than the benefics. Because he said, if you have like a Clear like a white piece of paper, and you put a black ink spot on it. It can kind of like take over the entire um, painting in some ways, and it can be very hard to then take like white paint and and go over the the black mark. Um, so sometimes, if you start off right away with saying something negative, that can color the entire reading.
1: Yeah, I remember that analogy you bringing that up, and another one of those. Uh... Cautionary notes for astrologers is missing the forest for the trees. Where if you just follow the hit list that the computer spits out, you can miss the bigger trends. For example, a person may have Saturn in their sun sign. That's going to affect them the entire time for better or worse, or better and worse, usually, the entire time it's in that sun sign. Whereas if you're just looking at the hit list, you might totally miss that. It might have happened a year and a half ago that it moved into that sign. And you're looking at the transits happening the given week of that person's life and not looking at the bigger picture. Or, uh, like I had a client where uh, she said, I wonder why things have been so hard for me with my career lately. And if you looked at the transits, there was some like Jupiter trying, they were positive transits, quote unquote positive transits. And yet Saturn was in her 10th house for two years. And so she was having struggles. It wasn't bad. I didn't say this is a bad energy, but with struggles though, Saturn does produce a certain amount of struggle. That's that whole late blooming thing that I get into. It's uh, it's like a thing. Unlike Jupiter, which tends to be things handed to you on a silver platter, Saturn, you work hard for whatever you get, and it doesn't come easy. Whatever that is by house, tr- sign, or planet. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a actually really important topic as well. Um, one of the other mistakes you say that people astrologers sometimes make is telling people what to do. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting and important one because I know there's different astrologers. There's some astrologers I've heard that are much more take the exact opposite end of that and will tell people what to do or what they think a person should and shouldn't do or, or do a synastry reading and say a person should or shouldn't be with such and such person. But this is one where you take a more. You think it's important um, as a sort of prime directive, almost. Prime not directive. To, yeah. Not not to make the decision for the client.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think, and this is a philosophical, you know, opinion, but I don't think we're here to change people's lives. I think we're here to help people make the changes that they want to make. But I don't think it's it's our it's within our authority. And who wants the karma anyway of saying whether you should or shouldn't do anything? And I've used the example of uh, if I remember this correctly, where a friend of mine was going to travel through China, and I saw some difficult transits coming up for the person, and I debated should I tell this friend they hadn't asked me, they didn't invite me to interfere into what they wanted to do. They didn't ask me my opinion. So I debated, should I tell them about this difficult transit? And I decided not to because of that whole non-interference thing. And so I said, I'm going to watch this very carefully and see what happens. Well, he wound up going on a trip through China and there was a, a somewhat of a tragedy where someone you know, got seriously injured and he wound up helping. And that led to him doing I, I'm trying to remember if this was missionary work or something, he wound up getting involved in some very altruistic actions as a result of that difficult situation that would not have happened if I had said to him, you shouldn't go on the trip. This is dangerous. I don't think we're wise enough. It's the law of unintended consequences. Do we really know enough to say that, you know, okay, yes, you should marry this person, you shouldn't marry that person. You know, not only is I think that tricky, but you really want that karma if if it for better or worse, you know, do you really want to interfere like that?
0: Yeah, that you're sort of taking on a much larger role at that point in making choices for the person that could ref- really impact the rest of their life in-, in ways that the astrologer reasonably can't actually see the full outcome and implications of.
1: Well, you can, I think, as an astrologer, it's it's perfectly okay to give them to describe for them the circumstances that could come up as a result of the aspects. That's different from saying you should or shouldn't do something. So for instance, if someone comes to you and they, I don't do compatibility charts anymore, but let's just say someone comes to you and they've got two charts of people that they are thinking of marrying, or I've got Joe over here and I've got Mark over here, which one should I marry? Look at the compatibility. Well, you can say what the chart says about the good or the bad of those situations, but I don't think it's for you to make the final decision. So you can, as an astrologer, illuminate their decision making. You can give them more information to work with, but that's again not authoritatively telling them what they should do.
0: Yeah, this whole thing is reminding me of this um, line from the second second Matrix movie when Neo's talking to the Oracle, and she says, "We can never see past the choices we don't understand." And he asks her, are you saying I have to choose this certain outcome that I'm not going to mention because it'll spoil the movie for those that haven't seen a 20-year-old movie? And she says, no, you've already made the choice. Now you have to understand it. And it was talking about a choice that was still in the future, and he still didn't understand and couldn't see what choice it was he made. But her point was that her goal was simply there to help him understand this choice that he had to make, but not necessarily to make the choice for him
1: yeah and it gets into the whole question of free will too in terms of there's an old saying in the yogic trade to the effect that you can't be free of your karma until you know what it is and i think that's true people say can you transcend the chart and i i would say you can't transcend your chart till you know what it is you know it's that whole thing of you know it's that it's that sense i always go back to the first chart reading first full horoscope reading i had done and that sense of revelation of How in the world can this person be telling me about my life from these notations on a piece of paper like that? Uh, I think for some people it might be a blasé thing, but for me it was like a tectonic shift in my life. It was, my God, this is an extraordinary tool. And suddenly I saw myself from a different perspective. I saw myself from a more objective perspective. And that gets into the phenomenology of Uranus. Uranus is outside the orbit of Saturn, the visible solar system It somehow gives you a a, a way to kind of peek at the script of your life to kind of step outside your life and look at it from a different perspective. And now you have a little more free will. Now, whether you have complete free will is something else, but you certainly have more choices when you look at your chart.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important, and it gives a greater sense of meaning and purpose as you're going about your life and making some of those choices, both the ones that seem really major as well as the choices that seem somewhat inconsequential at the time but later turn out to have much greater impact than it might seem at first.
1: Right. And I use the chart all the time. I mean, not all the time, but uh, like if I have to do something major, like if I take a trip, I will try to do it under quote-unquote harmonious aspects instead of difficult aspects just because I, I prefer to have an easier time when I'm traveling, for instance. Uh, I don't look at every little decision in the light of astrology, but it's very helpful in terms of you know if I have a really argumentative time coming up, I will tend not to use that as a time to engage with some important business decision or something like that. So it's very helpful as a tool. I have more choices available to me,
0: yeah, and um, one last sort of philosophical point you had a really interesting statement um towards the end of one of the first essays, I think in Under a Sacred the Sky, where you said that early on when you discovered astrology, one of the things that you were fascinated by is that it seemed to you said that it quote unquote hinted at some regulating intelligence at work throughout the universe. And I know that's something astrologers struggle with and their philosophies change and grow in different ways over time, but and and really fully even grasping like what astrology is and what its implications are for the cosmos and what it means about the universe is a really big question that all of us struggle with. But I think you hit on something really important there that at the very least it sort of points to, which has impl- interesting implications, but just this notion that there's some kind of regulating intelligence, as you call it, that's at work throughout the universe. I thought it was a really interesting thought.
1: How do do you explain astrology unless there is some coordinating choreographing intelligence that is putting all these things together? And the example I use in that chapter, I think it's the last chapter of of Stargates, was the client who was at a a minor league baseball game and she got hit by a, a, a baseball that came out of line and hit her in the head. And I looked at her chart, and she had, I think, Uranus squaring her Mars when that happened, which fits because it was unexpected, and Mars rules the head, and all this. But I, I was thinking about this, and how how was it that this baseball player out on the field hit the baseball, and this wayward baseball came and hit her? What brought those two things together? What what drew her to that baseball game at that particular time? And what drew that uh, batter to hit the baseball in such a way that it hit her in the head? There's something larger than individual, ch- larger than individual charts involved here. There's something that is or- orchestrating all this. And whether you want to call that like the Buddhists might big mind or Plotinus, like I said before, the one, capital O, or God or whatever, it's, it's, there's something, there's, a, there's some big choreographer involved with all this.
0: Yeah, well, you actually—this was actually—it was actually in the end of the very first essay. You probably actually returned to the topic in Stargates because it's a big one. Yeah. But you used a different example, which is actually more interesting philosophically, in the first essay in Under a Sacred Sky, because there you were seeing a Neptune signature in the person's chart as a transit oh, or something yes. that you were wor- you were worried about. And you actually advised them to avoid boats or like going out on the sea as a result of that, yeah. and the client. In order to sort of avoid the predicted potentially difficult period, did avoid boats and going out on the sea. But then they were, like driving down the road, and something crazy happened that day.
1: She was driving down the road right when this Neptune transit hit. And this had been twenty five years, so I don't recall the exact Neptune transit. It might have been some Saturn uh, Neptune. She was driving down the road on the highway, and a boat coming from a, a car with a a, tr- a trailer hookup. Was coming from the other direction, and the the sailboat or whatever kind of boat it was, motorboat I don't know, came off of the 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 trailer, flew over her car, coming in the other direction, missed her car by a few inches. I mean, if it had hit her, it would have killed her. And so she avoided boats, but boats did not avoid her. And how do you explain that from the standpoint of again some mechanistic view of astrology in terms of forces? it's uh even just the symbolism what does neptune have to do with boats what's this what's this symbolic connection between things that the planets rule and what brought that boat over there at that particular time why was she driving in that particular area when that boat came over her her own car it's it raises a lot of questions
0: yeah and it brings in a you know thornier topic about fate and free will and and uh, an experience i think a lot of astrologers will have at some point in their lives of trying to avoid um a potentially not preferable or or negative alignment astrologically but then somehow accidentally creating that very thing that you were trying to avoid and the sort of inescapability to some extent of fate in terms of experiencing the archetype in some way when when it's your time.
1: Yeah. There's a, a story, I don't know if it's an old Middle Eastern story or it's one by some modern author, Appointment at Samara, I think it is, where a person tries to avoid their bad fate and they wound up fulfilling it you know that's it's sometimes things are meant to happen no matter how you try to avoid it which raises a lot of questions about like you said fate
0: yeah i mean it's a common astrological trope in astrological literature like holden has a story about some astrologer during the renaissance who saw a bad transit coming and thought it would be very negative for him so he um locked himself up in his house that day Um, But then that very day, a band of robbers came by and noticing what they thought was an unoccupied house, then broke into it and then found this astrologer and then murdered him because they didn't want to get caught. Um, So I don't know if that's like a legendary or like a fanciful story or how that actually went down. But I know personally from experience as an astrologer that there are things like that where sometimes um, it almost seems like the placement has to manifest somehow archetypally one way or another. And that almost then makes me think of how this is something that was probably recognized in the ancient Mesopotamian tradition where they sometimes had things like the substitute king ritual, where if there was like a negative indication for the king, they would just swap out and like make some farmer the king for a week. And then once the eclipse or whatever was over, they would put the normal king back into into play or, or reinstall him as king or something like that.
1: There's a story from, uh, I believe it's in Paramahansa Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi, where his teacher Sri Yukteswar uh, was standing around, I don't know if it was an outdoor fire or what, but he took a hot coal and threw it at one of his disciples and had him catch it, and he burnt his hand. And it seemed like a cruel thing to do, but basically it boils down, as I remember the story, to the fact that he could tell either psychically or through his horoscope that he was under a very heavy Mars energy that he could die under, like being burned up in a house, and that Yukteswar burned him, like redirected the energy into a lesser manifestation. So you have these remedial techniques that in some traditions, especially the Hindu tradition, where you can offset or certainly soften the energy through certain rituals or you burn it off. You might say you have to manifest the karma, but it it can be symbolically burned off instead of literally burned off.
0: Right. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot lately as an astrologer and the extent to which you can sidestep or harness or redirect and rechannel things versus the extent to which some things are kind of out of your hands and are already set in motion like a long time ago and, and sort of headed your way one way or another and are not necessarily always things you can control and manipulate in different ways. Right cool well where can people find out more information about your work or what do you have coming up in the future
1: i have um i have a book coming out sometime early next year the tentative title is when the stars align and my website is um R-A-Y-G-R-A-S-S-E.com. and uh i have i i have seven books out and you can find those all on amazon if you search for them
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot for for joining me today. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Isa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month. Access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called SolarFire for Windows, which is available at aLabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called Astrogold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io. And you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called The Hellenistic Astrology Course which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So, find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org and the Astrogold Astrology app which is available for iPhone and Android you can find out more information about that at astrogold.io